This episode of Navarra Live is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you. Welcome to Navarra Live. I'm Michael Walker. And on a very big news day, I'm joined by Aaron Bastani. Um, Aaron, I assume you've been glued um, to the news this weekend. I have very much been glued to the news, particularly uh, one of our stories relating to, to Dagestan. My, uh, my grandmother isn't uh, isn't wasn't far from there. She's a she's of Jewish heritage from that part of the world, so particularly interesting for me. Oh, I didn't realise you had a connection. That will make that story more interesting. Um, coming up later tonight, Netanyahu is openly calling for genocide. I don't think the British media have quite woken up to the nature of the government they're backing. Um, Murdoch hacks are still lying about anyone pro-Palestine, and apparently Keir Starmer is more than happy to believe them. And Suella Bradman has smeared up to half a million protesters, calling them a hate march. First story. Israel has entered what it describes as a second stage of its assault on Gaza. This IDF footage shows Israeli troops and tanks pushing deeper into Gaza. The expansion of Israel's ground offensive began on Friday in the context of an almost total communications blackout in Gaza that lasted for 36 hours. That left civilian Palestinians isolated from the rest of the world amidst falling bombs and reports of heavy gunfire. According to Gaza's health ministry, more than 8,300 Palestinians have been killed since the onslaught began. That figure includes nearly 3,500 children. Save the Children have said that the number of children killed in Gaza in the last three weeks are repeated. 3,500 children is more than the total number of children killed across all conflicts around the world since 2019. And while the Strip's healthcare system collapses, over 21,000 people have been injured. But Israel's operation shows no sign of letting up. This morning, IDF tanks were spotted on the outskirts of Gaza City, reportedly advancing from both the east and the west. Witnesses have also reported that the Israeli military has now cut off one of the two main roads connecting northern and southern Gaza, and Israeli tanks have been filmed shelling vehicles there. This footage is from this morning, filmed by Palestinian journalists. It contains scenes some might find disturbing. That video shows the real meaning of a ground invasion. And shelling vehicles on the main road from north to south is especially perverse, given this was the message the IDF sent to civilians on Saturday. Attention, citizens of Gaza. Listen carefully. This is an urgent military advisory from the Israel Defense Forces. For your immediate safety, we urge all residents of northern Gaza and Gaza City to temporarily relocate south. Let me repeat. We urge all residents of northern Gaza and Gaza City to relocate south immediately. This is a temporary measure. Moving back to northern Gaza will be possible once the intense hostilities end. Hamas puts your life in danger by placing weapons and forces within civilians' area in Gaza, including schools, masks, and hospitals. The impending IDF operation 
is set to neutralize these threats of Hamas with precision and intensity. You'll note that statement was in English and was also released online during a communications blackout in Gaza. So you might wonder if it was really meant for Palestinians in the Gaza Strip or for a more international audience. We also know that there is no safety in southern Gaza, something my guest last Friday can attest to. Ahmed al-Manouk lost 20 members of his family after Israel bombed their home south of the region Gazans have been told to evacuate. And just today, it's reported that 93 people have been killed in the southern city of Khan Yunis. But still, the demand from Israel is to move south, and that advice, or that threat, is being made personally. Yumna El-Sayed is a correspondent at Al Jazeera, who reported receiving a phone call from the IDF this morning. The message or the phone call that we received was from a private number. He literally said, uh, he, he, he gave my husband full name and told him that this is the Israeli army. We are telling you to evacuate south because uh, in the coming hours, it's going to be very dangerous in the area where you are. Uh, My husband told him that we know that there are uh, incursions or an Israeli tank and other tanks in Salahuddin Street, and that's the main street, tying Gaza to the south. And he said, I can't answer you on which route you would take, but main street could, could be relatively safer. You should find out which one yourself, but you need to move now. So um, my husband asked him, should we make this journey now? Yumna, Yumna, if you are able to, tell us what you are hearing now. These are bombardments just around our neighborhood. Um, You can hear how loud they are. Our building is literally shaking now. Mm. We can see a black smoke everywhere from the window. So these airstrikes, by the way, have been going for a while now extensively in the area of Gaza City. I don't even know where exactly they are as I see smoke from uh, more than one direction. Are the apartments full of people? There are six families more that have returned to their apartments in my building. So we're seven families altogether. Some of the families have their relatives with them as well. So we're, we're talking about, uh, like, roughly 100... Ah! Sorry. Yumna, if you need to go, please go and find a safer area for you and your children and your husband. I'm, I'm just inside the room and uh, it just felt so close. It sounded window. close. It's just so chilling. And I, I think the most chilling part of that was saying those six families have returned to their homes, right? And you might be thinking, why the hell would anyone return to their homes in the north of Gaza at the moment? Now, speaking to Ahmed on, on Friday, he said um, the only reason that his uncle had survived the bombing of his family home was because he had left the south back to the north because he had thought, what's the point in leaving home to go south if everyone in the south is getting bombed anyway, Right. So you've got some people going south, then going back north because they realize that in, in, in the south there's nowhere for them to stay and they're not safe. So they might as well be in their own home um, worried about dying instead of being somewhere else and worried about dying. Um, also, one reason why you might have people not leaving is because, as you saw there, when people drive down the main road to the south of Gaza, they might get killed by Israeli tanks. It's just completely hellish. 
every time now you hear a TV interview with someone in Gaza, you just hear shelling in the background, right? And everyone I've heard sort of on on Twitter, on the radio is just saying, you you just never know if you're about to be hit by by an airstrike, right? There's bombs falling everywhere. Terrifying, absolutely terrifying. And still, our politicians won't call for a ceasefire. The chairperson of International Press Institute has described the call you just heard as a very worrying um, development. I mean, calling up journalists and telling them you better leave your house is is not the sign of uh, people that care about press freedom or reporting on the ground. Um, she also called it an indication of deliberate targeting of journalists. And it's not just journalists who are being targeted. Hospitals are coming under increasing pressure too. This is footage from inside the Al-Quds hospital after a nearby rocket strike this weekend. It's the second largest hospital in Gaza. And yet the Palestinian Red Crescent says that Israel issued it with an urgent warning to evacuate due to impending bombardment. Responding to that Israeli warning, the Red Crescent posted this message. We don't have the means to evacuate Al-Quds hospital. We have over 400 patients who are inside the hospital. Many of them are in the intensive care unit evacuating them means killing them. That's why we refuse the evacuation order. We call on the international community to intervene immediately to stop a humanitarian catastrophe that is unfolding. We have inside our hospital over 14,000 civilians who are internally displaced due to continuous bombardment that is taking place all over Gaza. They simply sought refugee inside our hospital thinking they will be in a safe shelter. Unfortunately, this is not the case. Now, Al-Quds Hospital, along with its patients, medical staff, as well as 14,000 civilians, most of them are children and women, are under the threat of being bombed at any second from Israeli occupation forces. It's just unbelievable, right? So many people are trapped in the Gaza Strip. They can't get out. And this is not to say they should get out because that would be a second Nakba, as so many people in Palestine are saying. Um, well, I mean, it's, it's obviously up to people where, where they want to go. I can, can imagine wanting to goddamn escape uh, to as far away as I could, but that's not an option for people in Gaza right now. They're trapped in this small bit of land which is being bombed just in the most intense fashion imaginable. And obviously, what do you do if you're in that kind of situation? You go to a public place where you think they're least the, the Israelis are least likely to bomb, and now they're telling that place to evacuate. By the way, lots of people in ICU. You can't just you, you can't just sort of get them all to leave a hospital, especially if the main road to the south of Gaza is blocked. Right? It's just torturous. Um, the Al Shifa Hospital is the largest in Gaza and the most state of the art. And um, there are now sixty thousand people sheltering there, a mix of internally displaced civilians and, of course, the wounded. But Israel has claimed that the hospital is being used by Hamas to conceal its control centers and therefore is fair game. It's a claim both the hospital and Hamas deny, as do doctors who have previously worked there. Mads Gilbert is a Norwegian surgeon who has provided emergency trauma care in Gaza for over four decades. Appearing on Democracy Now!, he said this. I will ask President Netanyahu to put on the table the proofs and the evidence that there is a control and command center for the Palestinian resistance in Shifa Hospital. We have heard these claims since 2009. We have twice been threatened to leave Shifa Hospital in 2009 and 2014 because the Israelis were going to bomb it because it was a command center. Now, I have been working in Shifa 
for 16 years, 16 years on and off, in very hectic periods, very hectic periods. Been able to walk freely around. I take lots of pictures. I video film. I've been sleeping in the hospital during bombardment. I've been all over. I've never been restricted, controlled. Nobody has ever controlled my, my picture and documentation material. So, well, if there is a command center, show us. You have pictures and x-ray films of all Gaza, all the tunnels, everything. So why is it that these 16 years of threats that Shifa is a command center has not been given any evidence at all that it de facto is. Now, if it was a military command center, I would not work there because I obey to the Geneva Convention, number one. Number two, if the Israelis claim that this is a mixed military civilian target, because obviously it is civilian with tens of thousands of people gathering there and 2,000 patients being treated. If it is a mixed military civilian target, the civilian precautions take priority over the military. So in accordance with the Geneva Convention, you can't bomb hospitals unless they have very clear military uh, uh, functions. Gilbert went on to explain what he thinks the function of the threat to bomb the hospital is. To me, this is all part of this immense Im intimidation of the Palestinian people in Gaza. They are threatened with leaflets from the planes and the helicopters. They are threatened by phone calls. They are threatened by, you know, if you stay in northern Gaza now, we define you as a terrorist. What is this? 2023, two and a half million, 2.2 million people, civilian, unarmed people being killed. A child killed every 10 minutes so far today. The number of killed Palestinian children is 3,324 and there are missing 2,062 Palestinian children in, in, in Gaza. That's 5,300 Palestinian children killed in three weeks. And I asked President Biden, what kind of president are you? And the vice president, do you have children? Do you accept that this is a war? Do you accept that your supported Israeli army is killing by the thousands children? For heaven's sake, let's have a ceasefire. Let's lift the siege of Gaza. Let's let in supplies and international teams to work. My colleagues are overburdened. They have worked night and day for three weeks now. This has to stop. We've also learned more this weekend about the tactics of the Israeli military. And many are reporting the invasion appears to be of a more gradual nature than was expected. That doesn't make it any less deadly, of course. As shown in this graphic from the Financial Times, the IDF entered Gaza from three points in the north of the Strip and hadn't taken much ground in the first 48 hours of the invasion. But soldiers were filmed raising the Israel flag over buildings they had captured well inside Gaza, perhaps indicating the colonial nature of this latest incursion. The specific nature of the ground invasion, which the Israelis are still not calling a ground invasion, appears to be an attempt to limit the losses suffered by the IDF. Now, a former IDF commander told the FT this, We are not taking any chances when our soldiers are manoeuvring. We are doing this with massive artillery, with 50 aeroplanes overhead, destroying anything that moves. Destroying anything that moves. Right. So you've got uh, a country which wants to minimise the losses of their military. Fair enough. I suppose most countries want to do that. But they are willing to um, commit this incursion in such a way that they destroy anything that moves. Right. So essentially that's saying we are willing to kill as many Gazans as it takes if that means we can enter this land without any of our soldiers being put in harm's way. Right? Essentially flatten it before you move in. 
So how, how much respect does that show for civilian life destroying anything that moves? Um, international factors also appear to be at play. So the FT report this. Officials say the more gradual buildup of forces aims to reduce the likelihood of Hezbollah, the powerful Iran-backed Lebanese militant group that fought a month-long war with Israel in 2006, joining the conflict. Committing fewer troops in Gaza would also mean manpower could be deployed more easily to the north if Hezbollah, whose militants have been engaged in escalating cross-border skirmishes with Israeli forces, did enter the war, according to the person familiar with Israel's battle plans. It also appears the Israelis do not intend this to be a short war, a former national security advisor told the FT this. The goal is not a tactical one that we will achieve tomorrow. What you are seeing is cautiousness on a tactical level. Why should we lose more soldiers than necessary? And an understanding that the goal is so big that anyhow it cannot be achieved in the next week. Aaron, I want your your thoughts on this. I suppose a couple of things to say. Obviously, this looks like just the most terrifying weekend imaginable for the people of Gaza. And we are also, I think, learning a bit more about what the Israelis seem to be intending um, to do, at least in the medium term, which I think is, you know, I've, I've been sort of reading tweets from Israeli politicians. Naftali Bennett, the former prime minister, was tweeting about this, essentially saying what Hamas wanted us to do was mount an immediate sort of large-scale ground invasion because then they would be able to do a fairly effective counterattack and take out a number of of Israeli soldiers and you know maybe damage morale in in Israel and he was suggesting and what it looks like we're seeing is instead they are doing a more gradual invasion whereby they take smaller parts of smaller bits of land let's say potentially bulldoze it um, and make sure that their soldiers aren't really put in harm's way while gradually making less and less of Gaza livable to be within potentially, this is to sort of create the buffer zone. They've been they've been talking about a dead zone um, to basically shrink Gaza and mean that a uh, seventh of the October seventh of October style attack can't happen again. I mean, w- w- what's been your interpretation of what we've seen over the past three days? Well, I think it's a very uh, a very thoughtful introduction to the problem here, Michael. I'd also add, however, there's a political dimension to all of this. Uh, Benjamin Netanyahu last week said that, of course, there needs to be an examination and inquest into precisely why October 7th happens um, from the point of view of a shortcoming um, in defensive operations by the IDF. How was this allowed to happen? This garrison state with one of the world's most impressive uh, security apparatuses, how did it allow its southern border to be penetrated like this and not respond for so long? However, Netanyahu proceeded to say, we can only have that examination once the war is completed. So Netanyahu and the government of Israel, which of course is a coalition of of several parties, some of which are to his right, um, have high incentives here to not expedite a a quick conflict. If anything, actually, the longer the better, um, even if from an operational standpoint that wasn't necessarily advisable. However, I think in, in the medium term, the two going hand in hand makes sense. I think you're right that Hamas wanted an initial overreaction. I know that sounds strange given 1,400 people died. But one of the core objectives with regards to that, that kind of um, episode, a, a, a terrorist act, a bit like September 11th, is that you want your adversary to overcompensate, overreact, to lose p- political capital abroad, to potentially lose um, soldiers in the field, in the immediate aftermath. Uh, of course, the United States and its allies did 
a number of those in the aftermath of 9-11, having invaded both Afghanistan and Iraq. Uh, and I think there was probably an element of that with regards to what Hamas did. And what Israel is now saying is that actually we're going to take this uh, one step at a time. However, the response they're now talking about, Michael, doesn't really make sense if it's only limited to northern Gaza. Unless, of course, the objective here is purely for a sort of demilitarized buffer zone. Because if they want to destroy Hamas, which is what they've repeatedly said, they will have to go into southern Gaza uh, because Hamas has so many of these tunnels, you know, striating the entirety of the, of the territory. A uh, great piece by Adam Tooze recently, you know, between 2007 and 2013, there were 1,500 tunnels between Egypt and southern Gaza. 1,500. You know, there is a huge subterranean network of these things under not just northern Gaza, but the south as well. So in order to defeat Hamas, you'd have to clearly infiltrate those tunnels. I think probably at a significant cost of life when it comes to Israeli soldiers. But you, you wouldn't just be able to stop in the north of the territory. You would have to go south. And for me, that signals inevitably a certain kind of ethnic cleansing and basically aiming to push Gazans into Egypt. Now, of course, nobody's saying that explicitly. And you might say, well, that's just a conspiracy theory. That's speculation. Well, it's not just speculation, because in the immediate aftermath of October 7th, an IDF spokesperson said publicly, those Gazans who can go to Rafah and enter Egypt should do. Uh, that comment was then subject, uh, subsequently disowned by the Israeli government. However, that is the subtext here. They want, as has been the case really since 1948 in the founding of Israel, as large a portion of the territory as possible, with as few Palestinians in it as possible. And I think that strategy, which is there with Plan Dalet after 1947-48, is still in evidence here with regards to operations uh, which are just beginning. So I would conclude with this point, Michael. I think Netanyahu has very high incentives for this to drag on. And I don't think you can realistically destroy Hamas, quote unquote, unless you cleanse at least a million plus people. Of course, the population of Gaza is two and a half million. I think that sounds about right. And uh, from what I've been reading, it seems as if they haven't quite decided what their strategy is vis-a-vis -vis Hamas. And I think lots of people are suggesting that maybe they have moved away from this idea that it's possible to eradicate them. I mean, I, I don't think it is unless you empty Gaza, which would be a level of ethnic cleansing, which I'm sure they'd be happy to do. Um, but I'm not sure if it's going to be feasible to do that given international relations. They'd have to agree for, for someone to take them. But it, it, it does seem to me like the, the strategy they are taking is to leave all cards on the table because what they're doing is essentially slowly shrinking Gaza, creating more and more sort of dead space around it. And it's going to be very easy for them to say, not in any way which is morally persuasive, but in a way which is, you know, they can diplomatically manage given the, that they have the, the US backing them the hill. They just say, well, we're never going to let anyone back here because that would be a security concern. So they're just slowly shrinking Gaza in such a way which is killing shed loads of Palestinians, but not really putting any Israeli soldiers at harm's way. And given the nature of Israeli politics at the moment, I don't think they think that, um, that the government is going to come under pressure because too many Palestinians are dying, right? The, the only thing they're worried about is Israelis dying. So they're just going to slowly, slowly take over more and more of Gaza, making life more and more miserable for Gazans. Um, and then I suppose they'll decide a little bit down the line, do we leave these people in the south of Gaza or... Um, is there a humanitarian crisis so severe that we can prompt, I was talking about this on a previous show, um, one theory that was written in an Israeli newspaper, that we can prompt a kind of riot at the Rafah crossing whereby the situation is so desperate that even though Egypt don't want to let people through, people essentially push through and then 
you know, you have a diplomatic crisis and Israel, sorry, Egypt are persuaded that they, they have to let those people in. It's all looking incredibly grim. And Aaron, you were, you were talking about uh, sort of the genocidal nature of this not being explicitly said. We are going to talk later on the show about some of the Israeli politicians that are explicitly saying it. And I think British media and the Western media in general hasn't quite woken up um, to the extent of the... the I suppose the crime against humanity that it seems like we are we are witnessing in slow motion. Let's go to our next story. We've pushed this up, and because there has been a development, um, you'll you'll find out in one moment. The British media has a new strategy for smearing pro-Palestine activists and politicians. If they haven't said something controversial, just pretend they did. Now, we reported extensively on how Sky's Kay Burley lied about Palestine's ambassador to the UK, Hassam Zomlod, and now an old colleague of Kay's is at it again. Adam Bolton was Sky's political editor and now works at Times Radio. He was interviewing Shadow Cabinet Minister Peter Kyle. Andy MacDonald attended the rally in London uh, yesterday, the pro-Palestinian rally, and actually used the phrase about Palestine from the river to the sea, should he have the whip withdrawn? Uh, that's the first time I've heard that. You know, I think that people who use that phrase need to think very, very carefully about the impact that that phrase has on Jewish people. Uh, now, it's very hard for people who are not Jewish, myself included, to truly understand the the, the, the deep emotional, cultural uh, connections to not just what happened with the Holocaust, but much, much deeper uh, other persecutions that go much deeper into our history uh, as a globe. So I call on everybody to, who, who, who thinks, who uses that phrase to think very, very deeply. And some of the other imagery that I've seen... And a Labour MP using it, should they continue to get the party whip? I don't look. I, look, I don't think that people should use that phrase because of the impact it has. And I think in a time when we, as one nation, has people who have a connection to both sides of this wall, both sides need to be extremely sensitive to the cultural and the emotional connections that people have, and the responses to it, and the the fear that people have about their own personal safety when certain slogans and when certain imagery is taken onto our streets. Now, I don't agree with what Peter Kyle said there. From the river to the sea is basically a suggestion that there should be a one-state solution to the Israel-Palestine conflict, so from the River Jordan to the Mediterranean Sea. Now, that's a perfectly legitimate position, especially now that Israel's settlement expansion has made a two-state solution almost impossible. We should not say, oh, it's anti-Semitic to want a one-state solution. That's ridiculous. That exchange was even more ridiculous, though, than it appeared, and that's because Andy McDonald, so he's a former shadow minister, did not say what Adam Bolton said he said. Now, this is the relevant part of McDonald's speech. Um, he was speaking to a, a Palestine demonstration. For far too long, Palestinians have been deprived of their basic human rights, their dignity and their freedom. We will not rest until we have justice. Until all people, Israelis and Palestinians, between the river and the sea, can live in peaceful liberty. So Andy MacDonald actually said this, we will not rest until we have justice, until all people, Israelis and Palestinians, between the river and the sea, can live in peaceful liberty. Right, so what he said is actually consistent with a two-state solution, right? He's saying Palestinians and Israelis will both be able to live in, in liberty between 
the river and the sea. Completely stupid. Another example, just as we talked about with Kay Burley, where someone tries to provoke a political controversy by making up what someone else said. And I am struggling to believe this. This broke just before we went live. There has been an update on this stupid, stupid story because Andy McDonald has now been suspended, suspended from the Labour Party for saying what you just heard there. Now, a Labour Party spokesman told the iNewspaper this. The comments made by Andy McDonald at the weekend were deeply offensive, particularly at a time of rising anti-Semitism, which has left Jewish people fearful for their safety. The chief whip has suspended the Labour whip from Andy McDonald pending an investigation. Let me just repeat one more time what he said. We will not rest until we have justice, until all people, Israelis and Palestinians, between the river and the sea, can live in peaceful liberty. It's difficult for Keir Starmer to sort of surprise me in how ridiculous his leadership of the Labour mm. Party is. Mm. But sacking someone for that, all yeah. Israelis, all Palestinians between the river and the sea can live in liberty. In yeah. what world is that not, not only should that not be offensive, that should be the baseline that we can all agree on. You know? That's right. <laughs> you know, some people, you know, people who are sort of on the more, you know, that Israel was always a colonial project, the whole of it, they'll say, no, it's, why should Israelis feel free? Israel shouldn't exist, it's a colonial project. But if you're saying... Israelis and Palestinians should be free here. You're accepting the existence of Israel. Like that should be, you know, Rishi Sunak should be able to agree with that statement. It should be the most incontrovertible statement one can make on this topic. It should be the most self-evidently good, um, morally praiseworthy, the least objectionable thing you can say is precisely what Andy McDonald has just been suspended for. And what I'd say, Michael, is of all the criticisms we made of Keir Starmer over the years, the various episodes and the incidents where people can go one way or another and say this is a complete political misjudgment or this is just morally outrageous, I think this takes the biscuit. It's awful. It is absolutely disgusting. And I think it does say something quite significant about the man and the political project he spearheads. This is somebody who I sincerely believe, although in terms of domestic politics, Labour is, for me, inarguably better than the Conservative Party, most certainly the, you know, the least worst option. In terms of foreign policy, Michael, I sincerely believe a Labour government under Keir Starmer is more likely to take this country to war than the Conservative Party. That's just a fact as far as I'm concerned. Because when it comes to, for instance, what's going on right now, let's zoom away from Andy McDonald for one moment. Why isn't Labour calling for a ceasefire? Because Joe Biden hasn't. The whole point of the Keir Starmer project is to do precisely what the Americans do an hour later. So it's not just about taking power away from Labour Party members and concentrating it at Westminster, which is what's been cheered on by the, the political media establishment in this country. It's about outsourcing this country's foreign policy so nobody in this country makes it, but instead it's made in Washington. And at the same time, if you demure from that in any way, if you disagree, you'll be called a racist, a misanthrope, a bigot, a xenophobe, all of the above. And you certainly won't be given a, a fair hearing, due process, listened to judiciously or in a way that's broadly commensurate with a lawyer, let alone a human rights lawyer, for God's sake. So I think somebody who's this tyrannical, Michael, who's this averse to basic principles of fairness, or even just listening to what people say, as is the case with Andy McDonald, my view is he, he clearly shouldn't be the prime minister of this country. Clearly. If you think foreign policy concerning this country should be made by people in this country, you shouldn't like Mr. Starmer. And if you think that people should be judged fairly, uh, and certainly shouldn't be punished for, for something as commendable 
This wasn't not objectionable. This was commendable. If you think people should be punished for this, then again, I'd say the same thing. And Michael, it does, it does make you think. What, what kinds of statements would be prescribed or criminalized under a Starmer government? It's, you know, this statement said by Andy McDonald, if this is sufficient to suspend him, if somebody goes and says that at work under a Labour government and they get fired, are Labour going to support them? Because this is meant to be the party of workers' rights, remember? And he's not said anything remotely objectionable, as we both probably agree. Or, or, or will it become a criminal matter? This is a very serious, serious point, Michael. We're looking at, I think, the most amoral person ever to lead a political party in this country. I seriously believe that. And I say there's somebody, by the way, who voted Labour in the May local elections and who's very open about the fact that Labour are a least, least worse or less worse option than the Conservatives. Clearly, the Conservatives have to go. I've never voted Tory in my life, but after 13 years, my goodness, they're in the mire. But we have to have our eyes open with this man, Michael. He's a very, very dangerous individual. I'm just still so shocked by this, right? Between the river and the sea. Now, whatever you say must just be dog... They're just saying it's dog whistle. So even if you just say, I want... Between the River Jordan and the Mediterranean Sea, I just want people to be as happy as possible, right? If that's my yeah. position, to say, whoa, you said between the river and the sea. That scares people. Out, out. You must be an anti-Semite. It's, it's so, so bizarre. Between the river and the sea, I hope people get along. Between the river and the sea, I want people to be happy. Between the river and the sea, I want people to be free. He even said Israelis, right? <laughs> he is calling for a two-state solution, or a binational state, I suppose one could say, if you're saying Israelis and Palestinians. The nature of the Labour right project as well, Michael, is that they, they don't believe in parliamentary sovereignty. It's part of the reason why they really hated Brexit, by the way. They don't believe in parliamentary sovereignty. They certainly don't believe in ordinary people having power. We saw that with the complete, you know, the, the uh, instinctive animosity they hold to membership democracy in the Labour Party. Um, so where do they think power should reside? They think power should reside with quangos. Who would be leading these quangos? Who would be setting the agenda with these quangos? From the OBR to the, uh, uh, you know, the uh, EHRC um, to God knows what, every the information commissioner, all staff with effectively water carriers, lackeys, has-beens and could-have-beens from the Labour right. That's, that's how it operates. I don't want my free speech curtailed, my ability to freely associate curtailed by some water carrier for this little tin pot tyrant who doesn't seem to be qualified for such a prestigious job as leading the Labour Party. Uh, and, and he's got this job on the basis of lies, mistruths, and the fact he puts a tub of brill cream in his head every morning. It's outrageous, Michael. This is a real, people need to get wise to this. This man is an incredible threat to your liberty and your freedom. It's Andy McDonald being suspended for his job today. It could be you being sacked from your job for saying something as completely okay as this tomorrow. This man could be the prime minister. Take this seriously. They're being very open about who they are, their political commitments, and how little you matter. If they could, they'd take away your bank account, your right to free speech, and even your right to vote if they could. Believe me because these people do not believe in democracy. They said it with regards to the Brexit referendum. They said it undermining Corbyn for five years. They said it in terms of trying to undermine Brexit again in 2019. They'll do it again and again and again and again. They do not believe in popular sovereignty, free speech, or, or liberty of the individual. Wake up. This is normally the moment where I'd push back at you and saying, are you going a bit too far, Aaron? But to be honest, I mean, if you're sacking someone for saying everyone should 
be free between the river and the sea, Israelis and Palestinians. I mean, it is, it, it's difficult to see what, an, what, what would count as sort of uh, uh, an overstatement because this is just so abject. Um, let's go to a couple of comments. Holly Tomlinson with a fiver. Starmer has just ceded even more power to the right-wing press. Absolutely. Alexander Hall with 15 quid. Here's to more of this fantastic, compassionate humanitarian coverage on the Palestinian genocide. Also, I've got a strong hunch that you'll reach half a million subs by the end of this year. Thank you very much for your super chat, for your comment. Um, I think we probably will. We've had 88,000 new subscribers to our YouTube channel in the past four weeks, um, which I think shows how how much there is a sort of desire, uh, a first for information, especially on this conflict, which we are just not getting from the mainstream media who like to pretend that this all began on October the 7th, right? Um, we should also say at this point, this show is only possible thanks to the generosity of people like you, our audience. We appreciate your super chats, but it's regular donations via our website that we're relying on to fund our work. And if you too um, want to fund independent media, then you can do for just £1 a month or from just £1 a month. Um, our traditional ask was for, for the equivalent of one hour's wage a month, but anything you can afford is very much appreciated. The link to do so is navaramedia.com forward slash support and that link is in the description box below. Next story. Keir Starmer is coming under increased pressure over his position on Gaza as more and more senior members of the party have broken ranks to call for a ceasefire. Amongst them are London Mayor Sadiq Khan, Scottish Labour leader Anna Sawa and Greater Manchester Mayor Andy Burnham. Writing in The Independent, Burnham also had some advice for the Labour leader. He's told Starmer not to call party members who are demanding a ceasefire disloyal. The Labour Party's official position is to call for a, quote, humanitarian pause to allow supplies and aid to enter the Gaza Strip. It's the exact same line as the government's, and it's what the United States has been saying too. But it's causing deep disquiet in the party. Over the weekend, 13 Labour frontbenchers came out publicly in favour of a ceasefire. They include Starmer loyalists like Kim Ledbetter and Jess Phillips, while a further 100 Labour MPs are also calling for him to shift his position. That's on top of the councillor resignations that have now taken place over Starmer's hardline stance. At least 29 have stepped down since Starmer backed Israel's siege on Gaza on LBC two weeks ago. But according to Lee Harpin, the position isn't changing. So he tweeted this, senior Labour sources pointed out tonight, A, Keir Starmer is 20% ahead in the polls. B, he has just enjoyed two notable election victories, by-election victories. C, position on Israel Hamas isn't shifting. And D, position on crisis displays an understanding of how a PM expected to behave. Now that final point about how a PM is expected to behave has become a familiar line of late. We often hear shadow ministers saying that because they'll soon be in government, they can't possibly take a position on war crimes. That could impact what they do in government. And we wouldn't want that. We wouldn't want them to have their hands tied um, so as they couldn't back war crimes in government, right? It's not the kind of thing you can commit to in opposition if you're serious about government. It doesn't have to be this way, though. There is an alternative. Spain's social rights minister, who's also a Podemos member, Ioni Balara, has shown how. Hoy estamos aquí acompañando a toda la gente decente de nuestro país y también a toda esa gente en toda Europa que quiere pedir y exigir que termine de una vez por todas este genocidio planificado, esta limpieza étnica al pueblo de Palestina que está llevando adelante el Estado de Israel. Pensamos que en este momento los líderes europeos, incluido el nuestro, no está a la altura de la gravedad de las circunstancias. 
No queremos ser cómplices de este genocidio planificado y pensamos que Europa tiene que actuar con urgencia. Creo que Europa va a pagar muy, muy, cara, muy cara esta hipocresía. La hipocresía de ir pregonando los derechos humanos en todo el mundo y después, cuando hay que dar la cara, cuando hay que estar a la altura, no hacer absolutamente nada. La ciudadanía está estupefacta viendo cómo se supeditan a los intereses de Estados Unidos y del Estado de Israel todo el posicionamiento de la Unión Europea. Podemos hacer algo y podemos hacerlo hoy mismo. Suspender las relaciones diplomáticas con Israel, aplicar sanciones económicas ejemplares contra Netanyahu y toda la cúpula política... También llevar a cabo un embargo de armas y, por supuesto, llevar a Netanyahu ante la Corte Penal Internacional para que se le juzgue como lo que es un criminal de guerra. So, who you heard speaking there is the leader of Podemos, they're the junior partner um, in government with the socialists in Spain. I mean, Aaron, watching that, on one level, I was, well, I mean, on, on every level, I was incredibly impressed. I think it's a brilliant statement, especially from, from someone in, in government. I think it sort of, you know, people I think have been wondering, what was the point in Podemos? You know, they don't seem to be as radical as they once suggested. Um, they haven't completely transformed the economy of Spain. But I think to have someone in government saying that kind of thing, I'm, to me, kind of makes the whole thing worth it. On another level, though, it makes me sad, right? And the reason I say this is because I think if every government in Europe said that right now, the Israel-Palestine crisis could be solved within a year, right? If there were people who were willing to say, look, we're not going to tolerate this. You have to get to the negotiating table. Israel, you yeah. can't have all the power. You are going to have to find a solution which is mutually agreeable to everyone who lives between the river and the sea. Oh God, I said it. I said between the river and the sea, right? If there were serious governments who are willing to take an independent approach to this and say, well, actually, we're going to have a moral position here which is that you can't just bomb these people indiscriminately who you've occupied for decades, right? We are going to be a, a neutral broker. We are going to try and make sure that the powerless have a bit more power so that you can come to a solution which is you know, sustainable, not one whereby you're just imprisoning millions of people and hoping for the best, right? I think if every, if, if every government in Europe said what that Podemos leader said, this crisis could be over in a year. And it, it's just such a shame that that hasn't happened. It could happen, right? Well, why do we have to toe the line of the United States? Well, it's a great question, Michael. And again, a big part of the project around Keir Starmer and removing the Labour left was about ensuring that criticism of Atlanticist US-led foreign policy could never be centre stage in this country again. That was the point. If you think that Keir Starmer was going to become Labour leader and somehow the, you know, the Labour Party was going to keep a remotely, you know, morally um, coherent foreign policy, which in any way dissented from the United States, you have absolutely no idea about how British politics has worked since 19, not even since 1945, since 1940. You have no idea. You, you shouldn't be voting in internal Labour elections because you, you're not informed. If anybody seriously thought that Keir Starmer could become the Labour leader and there'd be anything resembling a humane, coherent foreign policy, you, you just don't know anything about uh, parliamentary politics or the history of the Labour Party. Look, you know what? It's more fun. Stick with football. Go, go laugh at Man United. Go share memes of um, Andrea Nana uh, being able to make a save. Okay? Share TikToks of Harry Maguire. You, you don't know what you're talking about. If you thought that Keir Starmer could any, be anything but this, right? The point of the Starmer project is for British foreign policy to do zero until the White House tells them what to do. They say jump, we say how high. That was the point of the project. A lot of people, powerful people in this country, 
the major misgivings they had around Corbynism and Corbyn wasn't about the domestic agenda. They can, they can deal with that, okay? You weather it out. You hit the guy with bad media for three, four, five, six months. Fine. But on foreign policy, if you have a senior member of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, which is what Britain is, in any way dissenting from the line of the United States, that would be huge. It would be huge. It cannot happen. It is not allowed. And that was, the, I think, the principal reason around what, why the establishment reacted to Corbyn the way they did, and the principal reason that Starmer was elevated so quickly in the manner that he was. Now, of course, I'm talking just about the UK, but there's others too. Von der Leyen, Ursula von der Leyen, European Commission uh, head honcho. Nobody votes for her, except for some people in the European Parliament ratify or whatever. Nobody actually votes for her. 500 million Europeans don't vote for this woman to go around the world and flying here, there, and everywhere, uh, pontificating on what's what. Nobody votes for her. But apparently, it's, it's democratic organization, the European Union, so good, fantastic, so, so progressive. The von der Leyen is doing all this without any concern for actual scrutiny or accountability. Well, why is she doing that? I've talked about Starmer. Well, you have a, you have a continent-wide transnational political class, center-left, center-right, center. What does von der Leyen want to do after she's finished this job? I guess she probably wants to go work for NATO. Maybe she'll go work for the World Trade Organization. Maybe she'll go work for the World Bank or the IMF, like Christine Lagarde. Kaya Kallas in Estonia, what does she do after she leaves politics? Well, she'll probably go into some form of political consultancy, um, like uh, the, the recent New Zealand Prime Minister. Or again, she might go into this alphabet soup of uh, you know, international organizations. And to have those kinds of jobs, again, you can't dissent from the line which is really the existing state of things, things as they are. If you're going to be bold enough to even criticize something, heaven forbid, try and solve a problem, you will not be lined up for a plum job at the IMF, WTO, WTO World Bank, OECD, God knows where. That's what these people want. They want political non-jobs. And of course she wants a political non-job. The one time she had a political job, when she was German Defense Secretary, they were doing... Um, they were doing training drills, the German army, using broomsticks. Okay, that's how poorly equipped they were. When she was running things, she made a disgrace of herself in the, in the domestic German political arena. So she was moved, not just sideways, she was moved up. Okay, you, you, can, do, you can run the European Commission now. It's a little job after all. Uh, so that, to me, is a big reason why we had this failure, Michael. And look, people know this. I, I'm a skeptic of the European Union, and this is a big reason why. We create a distant, detached political class who are in no way in touch with their domestic populations. You think Ursula von der Leyen represents working-class blue-collar Germans, middle-class Germans? You think that? I've got news for you. No, she doesn't. Okay, Macron does the things he uh, does the things he does with regards to Russia or China. You might agree or disagree. He does them because he knows ultimately the median French voter thinks a certain way. They want to maximise the economic interests of France, right? or they want to ensure, minimize the possibility of a, a transcontinental war, right? So Macron's going to behave in a certain way that von der Leyen doesn't have to. So for me, it's a big reason why, Michael, I've used this word before, people hate it, because it sounds reminiscent of the online right, the Euro cucks. And that's ha those are the people we have running Europe. You know, uh, you had Nord Stream being blown up. We don't know by who. Well, we don't know. Of course, we know who blew up, right? We have a pretty damn good idea who blew it up. 
um, or at least on whose authority it was blown up. This is a key piece of infrastructure in Europe with regards to hydrocarbons and energy security is exactly the kind of thing that an elected politician should care about. Cheap energy bills for your constituents. But the Eurocucks don't care. They don't want to make any noise. They don't want to upset anybody. Because if they do, they won't work for the World Bank, the IMF, WTO, OECD. So you basically have a continent autopilot. Um, and not making the big decisions, not addressing the challenges. And even when they make, they say they make the big decisions, look at Olaf Scholz, we're going to rearm Germany, tens of billions to rearm. Nothing happens, they don't do anything. It's bullshit. Because Olaf Scholz knows he can leave in two, three years and he'll, he'll do a von der Leyen. That option is there. So uh, European politics is in a bad state. And by the way, I have to say this because we don't talk about it nearly enough in the UK. Um, Britain, I think, is in a better place. Britain is in a better place than Europe, mainland Europe. And it's going right at a, at a very quick pace for a reason. When you said, um, you know, people don't like this phrase, I was expecting it to be something I'd maybe heard before. I wasn't expecting Eurocucks to come out. Um, but it's, it seems like a perfectly reasonable analysis to me. Um, and I mean, you know, we're not in the European Union, but in terms of if what that means is just completely deferring to establishment power, then that is exactly what we can say about Keir Starmer, right? I mean, he is very explicit. You keep hearing sort of shadow cabinet members on television sort of saying explicitly, oh, we said it basically as soon as America said it. We called for a humanitarian pause right after um, Joe Biden called for it. Like they're proud of it. Like they're, they're proud of the fact that we were just waiting for what America said and then we said the same thing. Isn't that clever? It's like, you, well, for one, it's not clever. And two, it's definitely not clever to say it, right? Oh, by the way, we're just, we're just agreeing with whatever Joe Biden says. I mean, it's, it's, I suppose in a way that's to prove to, I suppose, the people they're trying to convince that, that they are not going to have an independent voice in foreign policy. Maybe actually, I hadn't really thought about it this way before, but we talk about this with, in, in terms of sort of taxation and business, whereby Keir Starmer isn't really saying he's not going to increase taxes on the rich as a sort of electoral ploy because that's a popular opinion, basically, in all constituencies around the country. You know, there's some rich people who don't want it, but, you know, it's a majority opinion to increase taxes on the rich. But what he is doing is he's signalling to the business elite that they're safe with Starmer. And I think here, by them saying, we're not going to say anything that the Americans haven't said, obviously, that's not for elected. The public don't think that's a strong, impressive thing to say. Oh, we're waiting for the Americans to say whatever, and then we agree with them. That seems weak to the public, but it does seem reassuring to the foreign policy and military establishment. So I suppose maybe that's what we're seeing here. It's pure signalling. Um, it just so happens to have led the Labour Party into a position where they are endorsing war crimes and endorsing the indiscriminate bombings of homes filled with multi-generations of the same family. You know, people where 20, 30 members of the same family are, are dying. Um, and, you know, it's not because Keir Starmer hasn't called for a ceasefire. Obviously, if he called for a ceasefire, that wouldn't stop this. Um, but that is the kind of thing that Labour and all of these politicians around Europe are sort of willing to, to endorse because they don't want to rock the boat. And I do think it is pretty disgraceful. Let's go to our next story. Dagestan is a southern Russian republic with a largely Muslim population. On Sunday evening, rumours circulated on Telegram that a commercial flight from Tel Aviv was landing at the airport in its capital. Telegram messages claimed it was carrying refugees from Israel and hundreds of young men stormed the airport. This footage was captured from inside. Oh, 
Russia's aviation authority soon closed the airport citing intruders with police detaining 60 people. 20 people were reportedly injured. The Guardian has some of the details of what prompted the riot reporting this. Some of the signs held by protesters read, quote, we are against Jewish refugees. Police stood by as hundreds of protesters surged into the airport's main terminal, entering restricted areas and demanding that customs officials direct them towards the arriving passengers. Followers of Utro Dagestan, one of the Telegram accounts that regularly carries news mixed with conspiracy theories, were told to besiege the local airport, interrogate arriving passengers and demand that they denounce the Israeli government. The account also called on local people to follow any arriving Israelis, take pictures of their vehicles and write down the addresses where they were staying and were pretty terrifying. The violence in Dagestan hasn't been confined to the airport. The Guardian also reports this. In Nalchik, another city in the neighboring kabardino balkaria region, a planned Jewish center was set on fire earlier on Sunday. Um, earlier on Sunday, protesters also besieged a hotel in the Dagestani capital of Kasavyurt, searching rooms for, quote, Jewish refugees. There are around 3,500 Jewish people in Dagestan, and tensions have been rising since the assault on Gaza began about the impact of the war. A government representative for the Jewish community said this to the Podium news outlet. The situation is very difficult in Dagestan. People from the community are afraid. They call, and I do not know what to advise. Is it worth leaving? Because Russia is not our salvation. There were pogroms in Russia too. It's unclear where to run. Dagestan's head, Sergei Melikov, has condemned the riot while also blaming, quote, fakes spread by our enemies um, for the unrest. It's also, um, it's all very unpleasant, right? Um, it's already being exploited by the worst people in UK politics. So Luke Akehurst is a Starmer ally and sits on Labour's NEC. Perhaps people could wake up and realise there is a connection between anti-Semitic attacks, whether in Dagestan or Stamford Hill, and lurid, exaggerated, demonising language about Israel committing genocide, collective punishment, or carpet bombing. Oh, my God. As we're going to talk about in a moment, Netanyahu is being very explicit about his genocidal intentions. We are also seeing politicians say, you know, we are going to be indiscriminate with our bombing. We are, we are prioritizing damage over precision. That was the defense secretary. So the idea that to use collective punishment is somehow linking you to those horrific scenes in Dagestan, I find incredibly offensive. But that is the state of, of discourse in this country. Um, Aaron, you, you said um, at the start you had a family connection to, to Dagestan. Um, what do you make of these scenes? Well, not not quite Dagestan, Michael. My um, my grandmother's family, well, all of my father's side are Azeris. They're Turkish-speaking Caucasians. Uh, the Azerbaijan today is obviously a country. It's also the north part of Iran. My dad's family were from the Russian Empire. Uh, my dad's dad's family, rather. My dad's mother, we don't quite know. We don't know if she was Sephardi or what's called a mountain Jew. Um, uh, not like the drink. Uh, so... It's an interesting one, but she was from north of her family's from north of Baku, so you're getting very close to Dagestan at that point. It's only you know, a couple of hundred miles, probably. Uh, what I find interesting, Michael, anybody who's familiar with this part of the world will also know, by the way, that this comparison with the United Kingdom is insane. Is insane. I think in Dagestan there are, I think it's more than, I think it's about fourteen official languages, twelve official ethnic groups, or maybe it's the other way around. Um, you have. Um, I've actually got some of the names here. You've got Laks, you've got uh, Lesgins, Chechens, Tats, Nogais. Nogais are the descendants of Genghis Khan. Uh, Tats, I believe, speak a, a variant of Farsi. So you've got people who speak ancient languages, 
which are attached to the Mongols or Turkic tribes, other other Turkic tribes, or dialects of Farsi. Um, there are other languages which have borrowed some words from Russian, some from Farsi, Persian, some from Turkic languages. This is a place of three million people, twelve or more official languages, and you're comparing it to, let's say, England, which has been a continuous political legal entity for what eleven hundred years. I mean, it, it defies belief that anyone seriously could say your civil liberties will be treated the same in Dagestan or in the UK. Really? How thick, how stupid do you think we are? Really? You go and tell an LGBT person that they're, they're going to be viewed or treated the same in Dagestan as they are in London. You have to be off your rocker to believe that. You have to be terminally stupid to believe that. I actually, if I was to think about somewhere which couldn't be more different to the UK, Dagestan would be up there. And of course, invariably, what also came out was this is Russia. Therefore, this is, you know, state sponsored, coordinated by, you know, the Kremlin. These people have no idea what they're talking about. There's that, there's that proverb, isn't there, in China, the sky is high and the emperor uh, far away. That's how Dagestan relates to somewhere like Moscow. Uh, very different political, social, cultural dynamics in these places to Moscovy, white European Russia, right? I mean, my God, the Chechens had two wars, for, for goodness sake. You'd think that would be some indication of just how different these places are. And I'll finish with this, Michael, because it's, it's interesting in a way, is that in this part of the world, until quite recently, you had massive Jewish populations, massive, uh, like I say, including people like my uh, grandmother. And they were actually treated in a quite distinct way to Ashkenazi or Sephardi Jews in Europe or Russia. And strangely enough, the figure of the Armenian uh, played, that, um, played that role, so to speak, as this sort of uh, social, cultural other, the moneylender, the economic intermediary uh, that often the Jew played in the European mind and was obviously a, a central pillar of anti-Semitism. But what's quite unique in this part of the world is that role instead was uh, performed uh, as a cultural archetype by the Armenian. So actually, anti-Semitism in, 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 in the Caucasus was historically far less strong than it was in places like um, Europe and, and, and European Russia. And of course, that's been now sub somewhat subverted. But to, to sort of distill how different Dagestan is from um, the UK, I'm sure some people are aware of, uh, is it uh, Nuremedikov? I can't say his name, uh, MMA fighter, had several fights with uh, Conor McGregor. Oh, yeah, one fight with Conor McGregor, rather, very uh, famous one. Now, that, that guy was raised as a child fighting bears, okay? So it's the idea, is, oh, it's just like Britain. You're, you're talking such complete and utter nonsense. It's not even worth listening to. But, of course, you have somebody like Luke Akers, who is who's literally a lobbyist. He's literally a paid lobbyist. He works on behalf of another country, yet he's playing a central role in the political operations of a party in this country which wants to govern. He can, he can say this nonsense. And by the way, you know, Michael, I've said it before. I haven't said it for a while, though. Luke Akers is a lobbyist for the interests, representing the interests of Israel. What, what, what other countries would be represented in such a way? Can you imagine if there was a, a lobbyist for India and they were one of the the, the, the chief architects of the Conservative Party. Do you really think that wouldn't be raised? Or Pakistan? Do you really think that wouldn't be an issue? I certainly can imagine for a majority Muslim country, impossible. 
Uh, but this is apparently normal. It's apparently normal. You're paid to represent the interests of this country, but by the way, you can be very central in the in the architecture of a political party which wants to govern this country. Well, what happens where there's a conflict of interests? Whose interests are you going to represent? It's a big question. And of course, legacy media hasn't posed that to Luke Akehurst. When we're talking about Dagestan, I mean, I want to talk about it because it's an important story, but I was a bit worried we wouldn't have that much of, of, of value to add because personally, I don't know anything about Dagestan. But Aaron, you never fail to surprise me um, about the, the depth of your, your knowledge on, on surprising topics. So thank you for that. Let's go straight on to our next story. For the third weekend in a row, protesters around the world took to the streets to express outrage at the bombardment of Gaza. In London, thousands marched past Parliament, calling on Rishi Sunak to demand a ceasefire. Organisers said half a million people attended the protest, though others are reporting that at least 100,000 people turned up. As with the other two protests, Saturday's march was peaceful. Just 11 arrests were made, and only five people have so far been charged with offences. And yet, that didn't stop the press from painting a very different picture. Here's how the Express covered the march. Ban jihadi hate mob, they say. And it called out protesters who shouted, Allahu Akbar, um, the Arabic for God is great. But it's not just the media that's misrepresenting the protests. The government is getting in on the act too. Home Secretary Suella Bradman has held an emergency COBRA meeting where security services and police were asked to assess the possibility of a domestic terrorism incident following the war on Gaza. And afterwards, she gave this interview. Well, first of all, let me explain what we've seen over the last few weekends. We've seen now tens of thousands of people take to the streets following the massacre of Jewish people, the single largest loss of Jewish life since the Holocaust, chanting for the erasure of Israel from the map. To my mind, there's only one way to describe those marches. They are hate marches. There is a genocide happening right in front of our eyes. I'm actually sometimes careful using that word because it's. I do think we need to have the threshold very, very high for it. But I think what we can say is there are war crimes, crimes against humanity happening right in front of our eyes. And there is a government using very genocidal language with genocidal intent. I think it's very clear that Israel has genocidal intent. It wants to empty the Gaza Strip if it can, right? And they are bombing whole families. Despicable. Now, it's not surprising that that has motivated a lot of people to go out onto the street and say, we object to a government that is supporting another government that is committing crimes against humanity that wants to ethnically cleanse 2.2 million people out of their homes, if it can, right? And is willing to bomb hospitals to achieve whatever end it is they want to achieve, right? It's not surprising to me that has motivated a lot of people to march on the streets of London. And I'm actually really relieved that that's motivated a lot of people to, to march on the streets of London. Because I think if, if we were to allow something like this to happen on our TV screens, to see 2.2 million people locked into a tiny strip of land and then bombed, thousands of bombs falling, houses falling down. Whenever you hear of someone speaking in Gaza, they're like, I don't know if I will survive the night. Now, Thank God people are going out and marching against that. I think that demonstrates that we, deal st we do still have some humanity in society. And then the Home Secretary, right, she's in charge of all this, she's in charge of the police in this country, goes out and says that those hundreds of thousands of people who are upset and offended by seeing our government support the bombing of 2.2 million people in an open-air prison, 
they are part of a hate march. I mean, it's just unbelievably offensive. I also think it's, you know, we keep hearing, you know, these liberals say, oh, for community relations, we can't let, um, you know, foreign policy questions enter into um, British society, right? Well, if, if what you do is you see a lot of people demonstrate against crimes against humanity and then you call them a hate mob. And yeah, it's true. People on those marches, I was on those marches, really, really from diverse backgrounds. But obviously this is an issue which especially motivates Britain's Muslim communities because, you know, uh, Palestinians aren't all Muslims, but it's large Muslim communities within Gaza, right? So this does motivate Muslim communities because they don't want to see people like them being subject to crimes against humanity. Perfectly reasonable, by the way. There's nothing sinister about that. There's nothing cynical about that. But for to, to have a march, which is one of the biggest marches we've, we've seen in this country since the Iraq war, attended disproportionately by Muslims, and then you have the government saying this is a hate march. Anyone who cares about this is immediately subject to suspicion. I just think it's upsetting, it's despicable, and it's also pretty dangerous. Well, isn't it interesting, Michael, that the Tories love freedom of association, they love freedom of speech, uh, they talk about how liberty is the cornerstone of conservative ideology and politics, until, of course, somebody does something or says something or protests for something they disagree with, in which case, this is hateful, oh my God, we can't do it, how do we prescribe it, how do we ban it, how do we criminalise it? So, uh, probably somebody needs to explain to Soella uh, that that's not how liberties work. You, go, you can't just give freedom of speech to people you agree with. You can't just give freedom of assembly to people you would assemble with. That's not how it works. You have to give those things by necessity of them meaning anything to those you disagree with. Otherwise, they have literally zero value. Otherwise, you literally live in Stalinist Russia. You live in an authoritarian state. Uh, and Michael, this really gets to the heart of a really, I think, important conversation, which is, look, if you have a demonstration of half a million people there, and 5,000 people make asses out of themselves, or they say reprehensible things, does that therefore discredit the entire protest? I mean, it's bad, it's objectionable, but does that therefore mean that the 495,000 people who didn't do that should be tarnished with that brush? I don't think it does. And I have to be honest, I try and be fair. I do try and be fair. If there was half a million people marching through central London with the Countryside Alliance saying, bring back fox hunting, and 5,000 were neo-Nazis, of course you'd say, this is outrageous. These people are disgusting, blah, 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 blah. But it's, it, it's deeply dishonest, and I think malevolent, actually, to say that a, a perfectly decent good person who's on, on that large demonstration who hasn't said anything remotely like that. They just say, look, I just, I just like killing foxes. Okay, I find that weird, but whatever. It's deeply malevolent, I think, to say, well, you're just like this person over here. And by the way, we're not playing at that level. I don't think anybody's saying, I don't think you can compare it to neo-Nazism. I'm giving you an extreme example. I, I certainly wouldn't do that. And the point here, Michael, is they have to mischaracterize these protests because actually they represent a really large body of opinion in this country. Let's say 300 to 500,000 people on that demonstration is a very large protest. And what we know from polling data, which of course draws on even larger numbers of people, is that around 76% of the British public favor a ceasefire. I think 3% strongly disagree with the ceasefire, strongly disagree. Of course, if you went on Twitter, you'd think it was way bigger than that. 3% strongly disagree, 5% probably disagree. But the 3% strongly disagree, um, well, if you were just watching the TV and you were looking at Parliament and you were looking at Twitter, you'd think, oh, that's... If you're listening to Lawrence Fox, 
Lawrence, if you're watching, please try and spend some time with your children rather than behaving like a maniac trying to burn flags or pull them down in central London. They might value you for it one day. Um, if you were to listen to those people, observe those people, you, you would think that, okay, well, actually, public opinion is in a really different place here. But no, 76% of the British public want a ceasefire. Another poll in regards to which side are you more sympathetic to? Uh, now, initially after October 7th and those attacks by Hamas, uh, there was a small lead for Israel in that polling. Israel, I think, was about 22%. Palestine was 18%. So who are you more sympathetic to? Not who, who do you like and dislike. You might be sympathetic to both, but who are you more sympathetic to? Like I said, it's about 22 Israel, 18 Palestine. Then I'm, loads of people say both. And loads of people say, don't know, don't have enough information. What we've seen in the last kind of week, two weeks, is actually Israel's gone down, kind of predictable in a way, given that 8,000 civilians have been killed in Gaza. And, you know, it's about, it's about even now. So you're just as likely to sympathize with Israel as you are with Palestine, or not know, or you sympathize with both. But again, if you were to listen to uh, Saul Abraverman, if you hold that opinion, and it's really very much a 50-50 split, if you hold that opinion, you're reprehensible, you're abominable, you're immoral, you're unethical, you're uh, a disgraceful um, excuse of a human being, clearly just detached from reality. But of course, because the way media works in this country, we have a billionaire own press, we have uh, media which is either cowed like the BBC or like LBC and others, Sky, they take their lead really from the press. And so media ownership actually matters not just with regards to papers, but with broadcast too. Or they just don't think that they can, you know, they'll they'll be held accountable for lying, like Kay Burley did with Sky, for instance. They say these outlandish, outrageous things because they don't think there'll be any consequence. And I think that applies not just to people like Kay Burley or Adam Bolton, but uh, Sola Braverman here too. We often say on this show that what's so infuriating about the media in Britain, you know, even the liberal media, is they pretend that this whole conflict started on the 7th of October. So they say, yes, um, Israel should... Um, try and follow humanitarian law, but they do have a right to defend themselves because they have been subject to a really bad terrorist attack. And so you've got this sort of, oh, everyone should try and be nice, but there is this sort of moral dilemma which we're facing because this was a terrible attack and Hamas didn't follow international humanitarian law, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What all of that ignores is the context of a decades-long occupation, right? And, and you can't understand what happened on the 7th of October. This is not to justify it, but you can't understand what happened on the 7th of October without understanding 15 years of siege, 50 years of occupation, you know, the, the systematic oppression of the Palestinian people, apartheid. You can't understand it without that background. But Sawala Braverman has gone one step further because she said, we shouldn't look at anything before the 7th of October because that would be justifying the 7th of October. And she seems to think you can't look at anything after the 7th of October. So that there is only one day that we are allowed to pay attention to. Because she's saying, everyone is on this march after, on the 7th of October, 1,400 people in Israel were killed. And she completely ignores the fact that since then, since October the 7th, 9,000 Palestinians have been killed. And that's why people are on that demonstration. Right? They're partly on that demonstration because of you know, the decades of occupation and systematic discrimination. But principally, the reason you're seeing this number of people in, in, in London streets and around the world, is because 9,000 Palestinians have been killed. She didn't mention that. She said, these people are marching in the street after 1,400 Jewish people were, were killed in Israel, suggesting that that's the only thing of note which has happened in the past three weeks. So not only can we not look at the context before the 7th of October, we can't look at the context after 7th of October. We can only look at this one day in history 
and that is how we will judge the the whole conflict in the Middle East. It's juvenile, it's cynical, it's sinister, it's disgusting. Let's go to our final story, which is really goddamn disgusting. Oh my God. In Britain and America, calling Israel's war on Gaza genocidal can get you labelled an extremist. But Israel themselves aren't exactly hiding it. This was part of Prime Minister Netanyahu's speech to the Israeli public on Sunday. You must remember what Amalek has done to you, says our Holy Bible. And we do remember and we are fighting our brave troops and combatants who are now in Gaza or around Gaza and in all other regions in Israel are joining this chain of Jewish heroes, a chain that has started 3,000 years ago from Joshua ben Nun until the heroes of 1948, the Six-Day War, the 73rd October war and all other wars in this country are hero troops. They have one supreme main goal to completely defeat the murderous enemy and to guarantee our existence in this country. We've always said never again, never again is now. Now, the mention of the 1948 war will already be worrying to Palestinians. That was when 700,000 Palestinians were driven from their land in what they know as the Nakba, or catastrophe. But the scariest part of that speech was the biblical reference Netanyahu invoked. He said, quote, You must remember what Amalek has done to you. Now, my knowledge of scripture is not fantastic, um, but many people have now pointed out that in the Hebrew Bible, that Amalekites are described as the enemy of the Israelites, And this is what the Israelites are implored to do to the Amalekites. Now go and smite Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and spare them not, but slay both man and woman, infant and suckling, ox and sheep, camel and ass. Right? So kill everyone, everything, everything they own, all of them, men, women, infant and babies. Right? terrifying. For those unfamiliar with biblical references, two weeks ago, the former head of Israel's National Security Council expressed his genocidal intent in a more secular idiom um, in the Israeli newspaper Ynet News. Giora Island wrote this, Israel needs to create a humanitarian crisis in Gaza, compelling tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands to seek refuge in Egypt or the Gulf. In order for this to happen, Israel needs to demand four key points with greater determination than ever before. One, the entire population of Gaza will either move to Egypt or move to the Gulf. From our perspective, every building in Gaza, known to have Hamas headquarters underneath, including schools and hospitals, is considered a military target. Two, every vehicle in Gaza is considered a military vehicle transporting combatants. Now that's particularly chilling seeing the scenes of the tank firing on a car as we did today. Therefore, there is no vehicular traffic, and it does not matter whether it is transporting water or other critical supplies. Number three, the UN Secretary General has initiated humanitarian aid to Gaza. The Israeli condition for any aid should be a visit by the Red Cross to Israeli hostages and especially the civilians among them. Until this happens, no aid of any kind will be permitted to enter into Gaza. That is 
by definition, collective punishment, a war crime. And number four, intermediators with both diplomatic and military experience will be required to explain in detail these concepts to the rest of the world. It will not be possible to remove Hamas without exerting pressure. And if the Americans do not receive a clear and detailed explanation from Israeli officials and understand that Israel has no choice, it is comparable to the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, which led to the launch of an atomic bomb in Japan. So he's talking about an attack on Palestinians to the scale of the atomic bomb. And he concludes by saying this, as a result, Gaza will become a place where no human being can exist. And I say this as a means rather than an end. I say this because there is no other option for ensuring the security of the state of Israel. We are fighting an existential war. Now, you might say that's a former member of the National Security Council. Maybe he got extreme after he left office. Well, 972, which is a, a magazine um, for, uh, they describe themselves for independent Israeli and Palestinian voices, um, they have just published that the Israeli Ministry of Information itself endorsed um, on the 13th of October, so a day after this article was written, endorsed as its suggested policy position that Gaza be completely cleared of all Palestinians. Right. So, as I say, the Israeli government is not hiding its genocidal intent. Yeah, Aaron, I really still think that, you know, the way this is talked about in the Western media, the way Israel is talked about, just hasn't caught up with this. Right? It's no. still just talked about like it's this normal liberal democracy. Oh, you know, Israel's just like us. They've suffered a terrorist attack. You know, what would they do? This is just counter-terrorism. You've literally got the, the prime minister of, of Israel citing biblical passages which suggest mm. we have to kill every man, woman, child, and baby. And you've still got Labour politicians saying, oh, you know, Israel, uh, you know, we've got to support. I speak to people in Israel. They've got to defend themselves. It, it, it's completely divorced from reality. I do feel like if, if, if more people in Britain knew what the, the actual prime minister of Israel was saying, what the information ministry of Israel was saying, what Israeli politicians are openly saying, they're not hiding it. The, the kind of discourse we have about this conflict in this country would just seem so ridiculous. Yeah, conservatives love to talk about the Judeo-Christian heritage that underpins the West. What you're seeing here, Michael, the rhetoric from Netanyahu in particular, is completely at odds with ideas of just war that we've had in, in Europe or the, within the Christian tradition since Augustine of Hippo. So you go back, what, 1500 years. And just war theory, which also, by the way, comes out of Roman law, uh, even the Romans had certain ideas that there are conventions of war which shouldn't be breached. Three of the of the key sort of cornerstone uh, concepts, principles of just war, juice in bellow, are distinguishing between combatants and non-combatants, uh, proportionality, and military necessity. So you know, you know it's necessary. It's necessary to bomb this, right? We're bombing this place because the Hamas are based there. Um, so these are three big pillars. Proportionality, distinction, military necessity, which have just been completely ignored by Israel, in fact. And then in rhetoric, Netanyahu is saying, well, we are ignoring them, and I'm making this rhetorical appeal to the Old Testament. So you're seeing an appeal to religious scripture, which precedes ideas and ideals of, of just war in the Christian tradition. Very dark, Michael. Very dark. And a million, and look, that's not to say all the wars fought by Christian nations have been wonderful. Of course they haven't. But they claimed to uphold these principles. You know, even after 9-11, when the United States goes into Afghanistan, Iraq, they don't say, we will kill civilians. We don't care. They say, we'll be proportionate. Of course, we're trying to kill combatants, not non-combatants. They say, we will do things because it's militarily necessary. Right? 
We will be proportionate. Of course we're proportionate. Uh, if you look at Hiroshima and Nagasaki, that was at the center of the whole debate, right? Well, look, and I don't agree with using nuclear weapons in uh, Japan in 1945, but that was the, those were the parameters of the debate. Tens of thousands of people have died in Nagasaki and Hiroshima, but if we have a, um, an invasion of Japan by uh, the United States, millions could die. It wasn't quite that simple. It was more about actually the Russians getting there first, but park that for a moment. That debate, that argument was very much informed by uh, ideas of just war, proportionality, distinction, uh, military necessity. We are not now there with, with Israel, certainly not with regards to distinction and proportionality. And the fact that Europe is not calling this out, Michael, I think is a really important moment actually in human history. It's a really important moment. We are giving up on the things which apparently our civilization claimed it was committed to above all else. Not just for the last 10, 20, 50, 100 years, going back centuries. Going back centuries. Uh, and it's deeply, deeply concerning. You know, we've had about 8,000 civilian casualties now, civilian deaths in, in Gaza. In um, Ukraine, since February 2022, according to a UN agency, you're looking at around 9,500 civilian deaths. So 9,500 versus 8,000 since October the 7th. You know, that's only 23 days ago at the time of recording today. And I think you're right to say, yes, I don't think, you know, Western media, Western politicians are being alive to what's going on here. But the blue well should be, because this is a major, major shift. And it's even at odds with the stuff that you hear from conservatives, you know, the Jordan Petersons, the Douglas Murrays. Israel is a part of the West because we share this common uh, Judeo-Christian inheritance. Well, actually, what Netanyahu is saying is completely at odds with Christian ideas of just war. Completely at odds. We've never heard this kind of argument before uh, from a, a European. I won't, you know, obviously some regimes, I won't say them, uh, but we, it's been very, very, very unusual, highly unusual, highly irregular. And isn't it interesting, I'll finish on this, Michael, that you can talk about holy war as long as you're wearing a, a tie and a suit and you're buying US weapons and you are educated in American university. But heaven forbid you talk about a holy war uh, wearing a, a dish dash or a kafia, because then, of course, you're deplorable and you're not even human. You're not even human. You don't deserve the rights of a human, i.e. human rights. Yet you could do the precise same thing, quoting religious scripture, if you wear a suit and your interests happen to align with the United States. I think it tells you something quite significant, actually, about how, how, we, how we make sense of these things. Um, and look, you can criticize Europe all you want. I do it. Can you imagine a European politician doing this? I can't. I really, really can't. And I think it speaks to the direction of Israel as a political entity. You know, in 1948, when it was founded, uh, I think around 1% of Israel was, its population was Haredim, ultra-Orthodox. Uh, you know, some people say by 2050, you're looking at about 30, 40%. And of course, those are the voters uh, who are the bedrock of two of the far-right parties who are in government right now with Netanyahu. That is the future of Israeli politics. And it begs the question, at what point will liberal democracies in Europe grasp, understand, communicate, convey to Israel that they are no longer on the same civilizational wavelength? I, I think, personally, that moment's already gone, but surely it's a matter of time. When you have somebody like Ben Gavir in, in, in charge of domestic security in Israel, 
surely he's you know people talk about Maloney on the far right or Salvini they are progressives they're libs compared to Ben Gvir when is the penny going to drop with Europeans with our political media class it has to happen surely at some point the Nazis spoke in a very genocidal fashion. Could we also say that about European politicians with re- relation to sort of empire and in, in colonial era where they would talk, you know, openly, not in the language of sort of just war, but in the language of these people are fundamentally our enemies and we can kill as many as we want and who cares? That's precisely how Europeans, not always, but very often, um, conducted war with non-Europeans, right? Whether that was the Spanish in uh, South America, uh, whether that was, you know, the British in parts of sub- sub-Saharan Africa, the Germans with the Herrero. So absolutely. I mean, but the, those kinds of arguments being made at an intra-European level have been incredibly rare, incredibly rare. I know people like to talk about, you know, Europe's constantly at war with itself, which it has been. You know, it's not a phenomenon you see, for instance, in East Asia. Um, but uh, the, the idea of conduct, proportionality, military necessity, uh, combatant, non-combatant. Okay, civil wars are a bit different. So you might say the Thirty Years' War in Germany. Civil wars are a bit different. But intrastate wars between European nations, uh, they have I, I can't think of many examples where they've, where they've made these kinds of appeals, both to scripture that um, Netanyahu's done, but also that's aligning with the facts on the ground. I, I can't think of many examples. Of course, Europeans in non-European um, places, it's incredibly common. You can go all the way back to Christopher Columbus. And of course, just war theorists actually started to respond to this as well. You know, there was a big debate in 16th century Spain about, well, actually, you know, th- these are humans. You can't necessarily treat them in a certain way. And that itself, the fact we're even talking about, you know, 16th century Spain's treatment of the Western Hemisphere, the fact that's even in the conversation, I think, shows you how deeply reactionary Israel's political class is now becoming. The kinds of, that's now in the conversation. Scary, scary stuff. You know, we talk about post-modernity. No, think pre-modernity. Think three, four, five, six hundred years ago. That's the kind of ballpark you're in all of a sudden. And just because somebody wears a, a suit and tie and they went to an American university uh, and because, you know, they, they speak with a quasi-American English or American accent, just because they, they tick all those boxes, that doesn't make them any more concerning for me. You know, as a, as a phenomenon, Michael, I'm not going to lie, as a phenomenon, the future trajectory of Israel, uh, as it moves towards theocracy, I wrote an article about this last year, which is, I think, primarily an outgrowth of the demographics of the country, you know, more liberally minded, secularly minded Israelis, probably the people that founded the country in 1948, they are having a very low birth rate of one, two children. Uh, Ultra-Orthodox are having a birth rate of seven to eight children. Uh, and there's this line, of course, the religious shall inherit the earth. So people who are more progressively minded don't have the kids, and the people who are religious fundamentalists, they have lots of kids. That's not the case just in Israel. It's in many places, the United States too. Look at evangelical Christians. But that is the real concern for me, is that we're seeing um, a political, cultural context in Israel now which uh, is, is terrifying and completely alien to, to the West, completely alien. In terms of how we've understood ourselves and behaved with regards to the rest of the world for the last 80 years, it is completely alien. Um, it brings to mind, you know, a book by John Gray, who I recently interviewed for Navarra. It's done very well. Um, you know, Al-Qaeda and what it means to be modern. You know, this idea of modernity must look like this. Well, actually, no, it can it can look like this. Maybe the future looks like the past. That's the kind of framing that comes to mind when I think about the, the future of Israeli politics. 
my pushback was slightly, you know, in, in terms of the hundreds years versus the 80 years, because I do think that probably, you know, looking back to when Britain had an empire, we would have talked in a very similar way. But I, I, I do agree this isn't um, what, we, what we're used to seeing in, in modern um, European politics, discussing, you know, openly that you, you want to wipe out a people. Let's wrap up there. It's been a long show. We've covered a lot of ground. Um, thank you all for tuning in. Um, Aaron, thank you for joining me. Michael, my pleasure. Just on Dagestan as well, Michael, Central Asia is a crazy, crazy place. Um, you know, you had, I think, three Central Asian countries, Armenia, Azerbaijan, and Georgia, I think. I think. They all declared independence from the same city in 1918. So, crazy. Uh, please don't compare it to the UK. Very different. <laughs> Aaron's closing for, for the evening. Um, we'll be back tomorrow, of course, from 6pm. For now, you've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Novara Media. Go to novaramedia.com slash support.